This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I guess if you say so, I'll have to pack my things and go. That's right, get the road, Jack. Yes, indeed. We're talking about uh, cars today. And uh, our next guest, I love this. He writes, Dear Ms. Barra, please do not buy Tesla. Well, today, both General Motors and Tesla in the news. Shares of GM rallying following its latest quarterly update. Tesla, keep in mind, reporting results after the closing bell. Corey and I will be breaking it down. David Kudla is founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. They've got more than $2 billion in assets under management. David joining us on the phone from Michigan. David, so dear Ms. Barra, please do not buy Tesla. Are you really concerned that GM might indeed do that? Well, and good afternoon, Carol and Corey. Uh, the, you know, there's been a, a history of the automakers uh, making purchases, acquisitions of uh, other brands. And really the, the thesis here, whether it's General Motors or another company, is Tesla has a great brand, uh, largely revolves around Elon Musk, but a great brand. But they're having trouble producing cars. So if they were to uh, be matched up or acquired with somebody that knows how to build cars, uh, that would be a benefit to Tesla. And there may be someone seeking that brand. Our caution to to anyone would be we think that Elon Musk is as important to Tesla as Stephen Jobs was to to Apple. You know, Tesla has even been referred to as the iPhone of cars. Uh, but I'm sure there's some temptation there with all the uh, investment, the CapEx into electrification, into electric vehicles. Here's a way to have uh, market penetration with a very, very popular brand right away. And someone who needs help in manufacturing cars, which GM and Ford and others have done for 100 years or more. I, I mean... You're saying two different things. You're saying it's it's the apple of cars, except that it doesn't work. I mean, I I posted a video someone sent me this morning of the of a, a, some automotive people taking apart the the Model Three, and what they found is you know they like he said on one, on one side on the trunk on one side the gap was was pencil thin, and the other side you could put his thumb completely into the trunk. That some of the emergency features to open doors or the hood are virtually unworkable. That the I mean that the the if if the power goes out in a car in an accident. That any children in the back seat have to crawl through the trunk after lowering the seats to escape the vehicle. I mean, you know, that's that's not the iPhone. <laughs> you know, no, that's so two Corey, tin cans Corey, and a strong. Corey, yeah. Corey, let me clarify. Let me clarify. From a brand standpoint, it is the iPhone of cars. The people that love Tesla, the customers that love Tesla and Elon Musk, they don't care about a thing you just said. Agreed. But for the average consumer, for the average consumer, and for shareholders in the stock, they better care. Because everything you talked about is exactly the problem with Tesla and the Model 3. They can't produce them. When they do produce them, they're having severe quality issues. So the question is, when can they build 
build cars at any volume? When can they can they build a quality car at volume? And can they make money on so, building cars? So hence your argument to say, GM... But the brand is there. The brand is right. there. The brand is strong. But hence your argument, GM, don't buy Tesla. Let's talk a little bit about GM because we do have their results okay. today. And we are seeing the stock rallying. You look at the quarter and what, what's important that investors uh, acknowledge with this quarter from the company? Well, first of all, this was uh, uh, just a great quarterly report and annual report on revenue and earnings for General Motors. On declining sales, uh, they made money, more money in every market, uh, and the all-important market of North America. Uh, looking forward into 2018 and beyond, they've articulated a very good forward-looking strategy. You know, we think about the auto industry now in, in, in two segments. We think about uh, the legacy business, which GM is doing a very good job with internal combustion engines with their ratio of the uh, trucks and SUVs to cars. Trucks and SUVs are what are selling now. They're high-profit, high-margin vehicles. They're making a lot of money doing it. They've also, on the future of automotive, the other part, uh, have articulated a good strategy with uh, what they're doing in autonomous, ride-sharing, um, you know, better, more so than their crosstown rival Ford and, and some of the others uh, globally in the industry. Uh, they're really, if you will, firing on all eight cylinders right now. Wow. Eight cylinders, if only. Um, uh, it, it is interesting, too, that, uh, that they've been able to adapt so quickly to the, the move uh, to the bigger vehicles and uh, um, not be stuck with, a, with a, the wrong product line. Yeah, that's key. I mean, if you look at the, the difference in sales, we've, we're setting sales records uh, in trucks and in certain models of SUVs and in sedans. Uh, you know, whatever, no matter who the maker, uh, sales are plummeting. That ratio just continues to move because, especially in the U.S., the popularity of trucks and SUVs. The three, the three, three best-selling vehicles in the United States are uh, the F-Series truck from Ford, the Silverado from GM, and the Ram from uh, Fiat Chrysler. When you look at the crossover vehicles in particular, right, GM, that's, that's certainly a standout part. Yeah, the, it's, the crossover vehicles uh, allow them to build a, a car uh, that is on a frame or on a, on a, uh, a vehicle platform that, that's more inexpensive but still has that look, appeal, and performance of an SUV. So, so those end up being higher margin vehicles and vehicles that are easy for consumers to make that crossover to, that, to uh, an SUV uh, uh, truck-type vehicle. So what to expect going forward here? I mean, it just seems to me just about 30 seconds left, but that, that the consumer is pretty well stretched here in terms of subprime lending for automakers and things, and that this might be as good as it gets. Yeah, that's the concern among many auto analysts. Our concern, we're, you know, we're on the backside of peak auto. Uh, and, you know, when you're mm. talking about General Motors, their profits, uh, you know, were $2.9 billion in North America of $3.1 billion globally. It's all about North America. We're on the yep. backside of peak auto, declining industry sales. So that is a concern. But they've shown with declining industry sales and company sales, they can make more money David, than they did that in 2017 versus 16. David Kudla over at Main State Capital Management right here on Bloomberg. The heat is on. The heat is on. 
Charlie, talk about the price of Nat Gas futures today, a little bit higher. It's a good song choice. <laughs> Thank you, Paul Brennan, our producer. Uh, a January rally in U.S. gas futures. It was on course to be the best for that time of year since 1994. It fizzled, though, in the final two days of the month as mild winter forecasts uh, cast some gloom on the demand outlook. Let's talk about the natural gas sector because our next guest invests in it. Ryan Kelly is portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. $6.7 billion in assets under management based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, too bad uh, <laughs> January. It was turning out to be a, a bullish month for natural gas, and then not so much. Now we're down, what, about 9 It was up about 23% till about January 29th. Now it's down about 9% this year. What are the trends that you're seeing in nat gas in terms of how you expect it to play out over the year? Sure. Well, I think um, that we're in a range for quite some time, um, $2.50 up to $3 potentially per million BTU. Um, the um, <clears throat> what happened in January was there was a lot of uh, expectations for uh, for the cold weather to last longer. Mm -hmm. We saw record drawdowns in the reserves that we have of natural gas around the country, and that caused a lot of extra trading. Essentially, um, <clears throat> what's interesting though is that the fund that I run is focused on the utility side and the distribution side of natural gas. So what that means is that we actually like long term low and stable pricing because it means that there's more people, more companies, more industries who might choose to use natural gas. And these companies that we invest in, they're sort of contrarian to the price of the natural gas in that the more volumes that move through their systems and the more that the meter spins, the more money they make. It's good for you guys. Good for us, yes. So, Yeah, and, and uh, uh, it, it seems like the, there's been some more stability in that trade than there has been in recent years. There has certainly, uh, part of it has been the overall growth <clears throat> in the natural gas industry. Uh, it's not only been new households coming on, um, some industry coming back, but it's also been exportation. And uh, in the United States, we're, we're, hey, we have record levels of production, we have record levels of consumption, and we have record levels of uh, exportation at this point in time to Mexico via pipelines or around the world uh, via liquid natural gas that's being shipped through um, through ships. All right. So, okay. So interesting. Um, talk to me about the fund performance, though, because we have seen, you know, if you look at the utility uh, ETF, utility select sector spider, um, it is. You know, we did see about 8.5% gain in 2017. Those are the numbers I actually mentioned uh, before, but it is down this mm -hmm. year. Talk to us about your fund performance, where you're seeing some gains, where you're seeing some some struggles. Sure. Um, so 2017, uh, with the S&P being up 22%. Um, a little underperformance. Oh, yeah, <laughs> a little underperformance. The uh, overall utility sector was up about 12%. And you know, one thing that we always like to remind investors is that this is generally a utility fund. It focuses more on natural gas utilities. Right. Um, and there's a lot more growth potential in those names than some of the other parts of utilities. But this is a total return type uh, scenario where you're getting 3 to 6% growth in earnings per year and 3 to 6% growth in dividends per share per year. And that all together should give you a nice long-term less volatile um, um, returns. Now, what's happened most recently, unfortunately, is that when the tax reform came out, <clears throat> we saw some significant underperformance by utilities. And that's because the idea is there's not going to be as much of the tax savings that are going to the bottom line. Uh, they're going to be passed on to shareholders in lower rates. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, on to customers in lower rates. 
and therefore not as much uh, going to shareholders through buybacks or dividends or whatever it might be. All right. So is it a case then of investors maybe not kind of totally understanding what's going on in the sector? I, I think mean, what are the calls that you get from investors? Right. I think I think that's part of it. <clears throat> right now, uh, now that there's been this disparity of returns um, over the last few months, nat- these, these companies are trading on a relative basis cheaper than they have in three years versus the S&P 500. Now, in the last couple of days, a lot have changed. But <laughs> yeah. um, but in the last couple of days, this is actually getting to your point, what have investors been asking? This is when you want to own the utilities. Um in the last seven days, with the market being down uh, into correction territory earlier mm-hmm. this morning, close to it, yeah. Um, utilities were down about three percent during that time. So this is a, a defensive play. It's something to own in a portfolio. Um, it helps long term, I think, from the dividend component. But um, certainly have been some underperformance recently. We just have about thirty seconds left here. Let me just quickly ask you, Ryan. What have you seen? Um, what kind of calls are you getting from some of your clients, institutional or other, uh, as a result of like kind of the last week of trading? Just quickly, got about twenty seconds. Sure, um, not a whole lot of difference. I think that we nobody are, pulling money. We're not as much. You know, we've but seen they are some pulling outflows. Some. Yes, they are seeing. We are seeing some. I, uh, my wife called me last night, wondering what was going on in the market. So <laughs> that's part of it. <laughs> but that's... no, investors seem to be sticking in pretty well. All right, we'll have to. So. See how it, it seems like today that last hour of trading is going to be key in terms of how we close. Yes. Ryan Kelly, portfolio manager of Hennessy Fund, six point seven billion in assets under management, based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Carolina, in our Bloomberg eleven three O studio. Cause it's gonna get volatile, honey. but it's gonna be great. Not everyone's saying that this morning, that's for sure. Sarah Ponzak joins us right now, Bloomberg News Finance Report, as well as Ralph Dryborough, uh, co-founder of uh, Strat, Stratify, which uh, he's been on the show before talking about how to use the VIX to take out vol. Um, and uh, Sarah, let me give you, have you give us some context, first of all. What we saw in the, in the VIX is like uh, we've never seen before. Exactly. First of all, what a song to start with. There was a lot of volatility yesterday. Can't say it was so great. But what happened yesterday was, like you said, something that we have never seen before. I mean, the VIX more than doubled. And then what happened was we have these different ETNs and ETFs, so exchange-traded products that track the inverse of the VIX. It's basically a bet that the market's going to stay tranquil for a while, which has been the case in the past, but was not the case yesterday. So what happened was when we saw this crazy spike in the VIX, the people who were short the VIX with these products really got hit hard. I mean, the products were down. Uh, XIV started at about $110 on the day. By the end of the day, the net value was $4.20. Now, in their prospectuses, it says that if the products fall more than 80%, they have to figure out if they're going to be liquidated. And in this case, XIV is actually being liquidated. Credit Suisse is behind the fund. They said that they're going to buy it back, and that's going to happen as of February 21st. So, Ralph, uh, talk to me about, uh, you know, what I, we, you and I talked late last night. Uh, you were working in the wee hours, from what I can see. What, what are you doing and what, what's, what are you do, how, how did your models sort of work going into this yesterday? Yeah, well, I mean, what we're trying to do is, is essentially own volatility as an asset to be long volatility um, in a way that, that, that allows us to not have to worry about timing the market. Um, that typically involves us looking at index and, and VIX or volatility products. Um, and, and owning those alongside uh, equity risk and client accounts with the idea that, that on days like we've experienced the past few days, there's this very uncorrelated source of profit in client accounts. Um, uh, and, and, and even though we had a big move up in, in the VIX itself, 
the market move has still been modest. I think we've just kind of been conditioned to, <laughs> to uh, you know, assume that, that the market really couldn't even decline, you know, three, you know, over three percent, which until February first it hadn't done, dating back to the, you know, sort of mid-November kind of election time frame. So it's uh, it's been a little bit of an extraordinary change in sentiment, uh, but you know, hopefully that's healthy. Well, how has things? How have things changed in terms of strategy and using the VIX? as a strategy to take risk out of portfolios. I mean, you that's what, you know, you guys work on this kind these kinds of things. So tell me what's changed if anything. So so you, we mentioned you just sort of mentioned a moment ago XIV and and there are a lot of exchange traded products that, that were that were have been engineered to allow investors to to in many cases speculate on the direction of volatility. XIV was a short bet. XIV was up over 100% last year and now it's disappeared. So I think anytime there's a levered directional bet um, that's a cash-funded instrument, uh, there can sometimes be unintended consequences. Um, and, and it really is the domain, in many cases, of speculators. The things that we do are really in the domain of essentially providing a complementary source of long volatility or a hedge alongside existing investment portfolios. So um, tail risk has been a particular focus of ours and one that's been um, particularly profitable the past handful of days for obvious reasons. Um, but that, that involves us essentially um, owning a deep, out-of-the-money, um, substantial, um, long volatility or fixed position. Um, the positions that we actually had on late last week, uh, or well, actually going into to, to last week, uh, were actually at about the 23 strike. Um, and then we were actually hedged in a way that allows us to actually maintain that exposure in a way that, that, that doesn't actually create a, a large cost of carry or an expense to actually carry the transaction. Uh, but um, this is only going to so, be manufactured at Ralph, I would imagine, at considerable size. Um, you know, not necessarily. I mean, what's changed in sort of the markets is, is that as, you know, the listed markets have become more robust, these are things that can be done um, in separately managed accounts. And, and these are things that um, thoughtful, I think, more progressive investment advisors that are kind of looking beyond stocks and bonds that have worked really well the past 30 years and sort of understand that we're at this precipice where, where you have seen these correlations between asset classes and stocks and bonds that have traditionally been, been somewhat complementary. Um, if that does change, and, and certainly there's signs to sort of suggest that that's going to be the case, uh, then you know the next big risk-off event could be a spike up in, in interest rates and something inflationary that also drags equities down. I think that's something people are really concerned about. And, and again, in a, in a scenario like that, being long volatility is a source of very powerful, uncorrelated return. Uh, and we've seen it the past handful of days. Uh, I think it just has again become a little bit alien to people after you know being, right. being lulled into a you know a bit, a bit of a state of complacency you know the past year and a half and change. Sarah, forty seconds left here. What are people saying about kind of what's next? What's next? I think yeah. we'll have to see. I mean, it's a lot to do in forty seconds, but yeah. over a dozen other. Uh, volatility-related funds have been halted. So I think we have to see what's going to happen with these funds. There's some in Canada. There's some here. Uh, The Nomura one was already taken back as well. It was redeemed. I think people are saying this is actually a a watershed moment for the ETF industry. They have to see, well, first of all, they have to differentiate these products from actual ETFs because people are generalizing this, saying this is a problem. There's a bubble in the ETF world. Mm -hmm. But really, it's volatility. It's these VIX products. Understanding your investment and what you're investing and reading all the fine print sounds like um, obviously a must do everybody um, Sarah Ponsek she is cross asset reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio Ralph Drybro he's co-founder at Stratify on the phone from San Francisco right here on Bloomberg Radio I'm driving in my car I 
I turn on the radio? How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. I feel like our drive to the close music should have had the sound of a loud crash yesterday. Some impact of some sort. Oh, uh, but the drive to the close today... We are uh, lucky to have Jeff Crumpleman join us as the chief up, investment officer. Markets at, go down. Yes. They didn't go up yesterday. They went down yesterday. Hence the sound effect I was hoping for. Nonetheless, Jeff Crumpleman's with us right now. He's the CIO at Riverpoint Capital Management. Uh, Jeff, how you doing? Good. How are you uh, doing, Karen? I ask because I wonder. I, I, I wonder. Uh, uh, <laughs> the Dow is up. This last hour was crazy yesterday. Uh, strangely, I was actually looking at XIV, and I have proof because I put it on my uh, on my Twitter and Instagram, a video of the XIV crashing yesterday uh, during the last moments of the trading day. What? Uh, how, how did you feel yesterday? How do you feel now with the Dow up 474 points and the S&P up 1.4 percent? Well, I have to admit, I, I got up this morning and, and you know, we we're catching a flight to come to New York and on the treadmill and kind of watching the tape a little bit in the pre-market and your blood pressure uh, does rise a little bit. But we, we really do try at Riverpoint to stay measured, stay focused on the data. And we're not surprised. We actually think that this correction that uh, you know seems to be underway or wants to be underway is normal. It's healthy. You got to get rid of some of this anxiety that's built up, and it should set the table for what we think will be uh, continued advancement. But, in but the, the, the the XIV trade, the the chillax trade, the the I want to be level-headed long-term. I think volatility of any given day is not going to last, so I want to be short that volatility. That seemed like the exact same approach, and that caused some investors to lose uh, billions of dollars yesterday, today. Well, uh, we don't view it that way. We, we did, I will tell you, uh, yesterday in the rally, we took just a little bit uh, off the table. We took some profits. Uh, we'd been at the upper end of our targeted equity range, and we felt you know, like it would be appropriate, maintain significant uh, weighting, but move to that midpoint in, in our equity range. And that's what we've done. And, and uh, you know, your normal instinct is to buy on the dips, and that's what's worked time and again. We feel like sentiment could take this just a little bit lower, but in a normal correction type of uh, magnitude. And we'll have just a little bit of excess cash there to come back in. When we talked with you in early October, you said you had lightened up on the FANG stocks at that point, uh, and that you said that there was a lot more than just, or a lot more to like in tech yeah. than just FANG. So you were moving money around at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So we did uh, kind of. Did you pull money back, though, and put it into cash at that point, or no? You were still investing. No. I, it, at that point, we were simply what we would call remixing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so Amazon was a name. And, you know, history doesn't always prove you right in the short term. But Amazon was one that we had, you know, more than a double in it in, uh, in, in many of our portfolios. So uh, we moved away from it. We, we uh, added some names like Micron Technology. It's up 10% today. Mm-hmm. Uh, felt like the Broadcom and the Facebooks looked really nice. So, so you know, we, we hung in. But uh, we just remixed a little bit. Uh, and have you pulled any off this year? Yeah, so like I said, on how much did you temper back though? About four to five percent. So okay. you know, not we're not not heroic, right. but enough that right. that that you know. 
can uh, add some value right. at cheaper prices. So, so are you buying now as a result of, of the dips that we've seen? I mean, we're rallying again today. We're up about 492 on the Dow right now, good for a gain of about 2%. So we're trying to temper that buy on the dips immediately. We don't like to catch falling knives, whether you're talking about individual stocks or the market. Mm-hmm. So we would like to see things settle. And boy, you know, uh, today you, you, they settled pretty quickly, if you want to call it settling. They, they came back. We just think that there's probably more on the downside. Well, from down 500 up, up more than 500 right now. I was going to say, we've had a thousand-point swing. What does that thousand-point swing say to you? It's what we've been saying for a long time, <laughs> and and people start you know laughing and smiling when you say it. You've how many times have you heard portfolio managers say expect rising volatility? Right. Well, we we're got finally it. seeing it. We should. Right. So that to us says opportunity. Be smart. Pick your points. Pick your uh, securities, and it just tells me we're 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 uh, you know starting to see a move back to normal, and maybe there's a little overshoot in the beginning. The other thing it tells me is the narrative was really comfortable. What was it? You know, earnings are improving. They're accelerating. The economy is accelerating here. This is really good for equities, and inflation's low. Don't worry. Rates are low. Value, valuation, you only need to worry about. So what happens whenever you get a little change to that narrative, like, oh, wow, we got a wage inflation print, 2.9% wage growth. Oh! <gasps> Oh, my God, now we've got hyperinflation that's right out there. So you get that kind of nervousness until things settle in and people see, wow, we're not going to see hyperinflation. We're going to see rising rates. But, you know, I, 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 seldom do you go from zero to 100 miles per hour. But overnight. let's point it. Let's point uh, out. I was having a conversation. Twenty-four hours ago, I would have. I would have disagreed with you on that. No, but what I will say is, we are at an interesting juncture. New Fed chief. We're at a yeah. point where we've got a heating up economy, and so he's going to want to put the brake on a little bit without turning us into recession. But typically, when you start to historically, when you start to see the Fed start to increase rates, we do tend to tip into a recession. Well, we're very early on. Rates are, come on, if we put it in perspective, we're talking about, you know, 275, 280 on the 10-year. Uh, and there I'm are... I'm just saying what historically we see as we start to go in a, a rate, you know, a raising right envi- environment, it tends to... Well, well, typically what we see is a period where you have what's called good inflation. Right. And profit margins uh, actually But don't you think we've, we've played with that already a little bit? Oh, no, 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 no. I, we, we're, we're, I mean, 2%, they can't, they're arguing about, can, can we at least get inflation to 2%? If those inflation metrics are accurate. Well, <laughs> accurate in terms of it could be higher, they could be lower. But, I don't know. Uh, I pay a lot for everything, I feel like. <laughs> um, Jeff Crumpleman, good to get some time with you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Officer at Riverpoint Capital Management, based in Cincinnati, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. The I've never seen anyone move that fast. Straight. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, everybody, time for your movers and shakers on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, different tone certainly today, just two days in. We had a lot of selling, of course, yesterday. And today we saw uh, the major equity averages bounce back, as Charlie mentioned. As for the S&P 500, 399 names in the S&P higher today, 104 lower to unchanged. As we speak, Gilead uh, crossing, Gilead Sciences crossing with their latest quarterly release. Fourth quarter adjusted EPS, Buck seventy-eight. That is a beat by eleven cents. It looks like. Yep, eleven cents. One sixty-seven was the estimate uh, out there on the street. Revenue also uh, beating estimates as well. And the company boosting its quarterly dividend to fifty-seven cents a share. That's up a nickel. Uh, so reporting a ten percent boost in its first quarter twenty eighteen dividend. As for fourth quarter revenue, let's go there five point nine billion. That compares with the estimate of five point seventy one billion. So Gilead Science is out with earnings. Corey, though the stock is down about half a percent in the after hours trade. So it looks like one of their products, Solvaldi. Uh, some numbers there. It looks like uh, maybe down, so that might be a little bit of a disappointment. So the hepatitis C market, though, big one for them, up seven percent. Stock of the day, Stock XIV, okay. uh, the inverse of the VIX, uh, destroyed investors overnight after hitting some triggers that caused the fund to essentially be liquidated. We've been talking about it all day here, but XIV, um, we, you know, we were looking at it yesterday. I was, as I mentioned, I put it up on, on Instagram and on, at Corey John and on Twitter at Corey TV, and you can see the video of what it was trading like in the moments before the close, collapsing in the after hours uh, as the realization that the product was virtually worthless. But not a total zero. So billions and billions lost. Uh, but it did reopen late in the day. Uh, it closed yesterday at exactly $99 per share of that exchange traded note. Closed today at $7.34. It's a 93% loss. And yet the brief uh, trade in it today was really exciting. Uh, off the open, it was up 59% before falling a bunch again and closing off that first trade, which is about $4 and change, uh, uh, closing up 32% from the first trade today. Mm -hmm. So it was actually a big rally on that. There's speculation online that people were shorting it, uh, even out of bitterness um, with the notion that this thing was, in fact, totally worthless. But, in fact, um, uh, <laughs> the thing traded up 32% while it traded today, but a total of a 93% loss for the people that went home thinking that they had something quite valuable yesterday and losing billions of dollars today. Well, here's a stock whose value is going up in the after hours. Uh, Akamai, that stock is up 6.7% in the after hours Largest trade. tech firm in Massachusetts. There you go. Nicely done. $10.7 billion market cap coming out with its latest quarterly release. Uh, fourth quarter revenue, $663 million. That's a beat. Estimates uh, from analysts were $649.1 million. And the fourth quarter just at EPS, $0.69 cents a share. So, Corey, that's $0.06 cents better than uh, what Wall Street was expecting. So, as I mentioned, that stock is going to be one that we'll be watching uh, into tomorrow because it's up about 6.3% in the after hours. And I'll mention Netgear, too, out with results. Netgear is the uh, big maker of networking equipment, a $2.2 billion company out of San Jose, California, right here in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, Netgear out with... Um, uh, earnings uh, that were a little bit better than expectations. Uh, the company, uh, however, the, the forecast uh, revenue uh, right at the midpoint of guidance about, uh, you know, so not a, not a huge surprise, there, but they expect revenues for the next quarter to be at 300 and midpoint, let me do the math here quickly, about 300 and uh, $37 million in revenues. Uh, that's a slightly below the estimate, uh, which was uh, 343. So the analysts getting a little ahead of themselves with Netgear. 
All right, let's get to the volatility index report on this Tuesday afternoon. The VIX. And we never talk about volatility on the show. That's interesting. <laughs> I know. Such a shame. Uh, the VIX, though, in today's session, down 20%. As we saw stocks rally, we did see the VIX pull back 20% down, about 7.5 points. The VIX closing at 29.92. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. We're going to get to Mr. Wilson in just a moment, but first up, we got to get to Mr. Disney, Walt Disney, crossing the Bloomberg Terminal. First quarter adjusted EPS of $1.89 a share. That is 20, 28 cents better than what Wall Street was expecting. As for uh, first quarter revenue, we're looking at $15.35 billion. Looks like that's a little light. Yeah. $15.44 billion uh, was the estimate that was out there. The stock, though, Corey, is up about seven tenths of a percent yeah, in big the after cable hours. networks. Great returns in cable networks. A lot of uh, estimates yep. were. So about seven hundred million, I did eight fifty eight instead. All right, we're going to talk Disney a little bit more uh, a little bit later on, but let's get to Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Dave, what do you got? I got Molina Healthcare, Carol. It's a company that specializes in providing coverage under the federal Medicaid program. Uh, it's been publicly traded since two thousand three. The ticker is M O H. Now, Molina's shares climbed more than eightfold from December 2008 through last month when they set a record. The surge occurred as the company took advantage of Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Still the law of the land after a repeal effort failed last year. Now, several states opted out of the expansion. One of them was Florida, where Molina now does business in eight of 11 regions. Today, the company suffered a setback because state regulators allowed it to apply for a new contract in only one region, in and around Miami. Molina said its Florida business generated about 8% of premium revenue during the first nine months of last year. The effect on earnings per share may be even greater. Uh, you take an estimate from Piper Jaffray, and it suggests that uh, profit you know, may, may be 15%. Uh, for this year, based on uh, analyst estimates in a Bloomberg survey, that's what we're talking about. Whatever the outcome, the decision sent Molina's shares to their biggest loss in six months. Doesn't sound like much, given how much stocks fell yesterday. Nonetheless, Molina down 5.9% on the day. And the stock's still up about 7.5% so far this year, and what's been already a tumultuous, tumultuous year, Dave Wilson. Indeed it has. Not easy for me to say, apparently. <laughs> All right, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, Dave Wilson, with his stock of the day, Molina Healthcare, ticker is MOH. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.